Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Ko jo Malcolm, tako inoa, nau mai, haida mai. Welcome to this Word Christchurch Festival event, Adventurous Women. Tonight we're going to hear from five amazing adventurous women. Three are here in person, and we've got two lovely adventurous women on Zoom. No, they're not mountain climbers or explorers. But if you look up the definition of adventurous, it means willing to go where you haven't been before and do things you've never done before, even if you don't know how it turns out. Many women in our history have been adventurous, and sometimes that's not a physical journey, but simply that women have stood up for things that mattered, and they've spoken their minds at a time when that was considered shocking. They've charted their own paths into the unknown, but first and foremost, they were unflinchingly honest, vulnerable, and they made a difference to people's lives. And in doing so, they made the world a better place. Their lives were an adventure. It's my absolute great pleasure to introduce our first speaker, Dr. Hinemoa Alda. Kia ora. Hinemoa is a fierce advocate for te reo Māori and a fluent speaker. She started out as an actress and television personality. After her mum was diagnosed with breast cancer, Hinemoa decided to study medicine, and in 1999, after graduating, she went on to specialise in child and adolescent psychiatry. She worked as a youth forensic psychiatrist from 2007 until 2011 and completed her postgraduate certificate in forensic psychology. Her PhD focused on the development of tikanga approaches for Māori tamariki who experienced traumatic brain injury, or TBI, being inclusive of whānau and professionals that work with them. On top of this, Hinemoa has just recently written an incredible little book, Aroha, Māori Wisdom for a Contented Life Lived in Harmony with Our Planet, Popoya Tekakano Kia Puawai, Nurture the Seeds and It Will Bloom. Kia ora, Hinemoa, over to you. Whakataka te hau ki te uru, whakataka te hau ki te tonga, ki a mākina kina ki uta, ki a mātaratara ki tai, e hiaki ana te atakura, e tio he huka, he hauhu, tihei mauriora. Tamatea Ayo, that is the name of our moon tonight, and how fitting is that? Tamatea is the name of many of our famous adventurers, not only from where I'm from in Moody Whenua, but from all around Aotearoa, New Zealand. So let's paddle out into this magical night of Tamatea Ayo. Our rhythm, in together, out together, reminds us of the rhythms of our own oceans inside our hearts pumping to the same beat as our hoi, our paddles, through the waters we find ourselves in. It's a moon of two halves. If you look up, you'll, you'll see the light half and the dark half, the shadow and the luminescence, a potent sign of our uncertainty, so much uncertainty, a sea full of it. While the surface might appear smooth, there are undercurrents, and we find new meaning in the whakatauki, e kitea ai ngā taonga te moana me māku koe, nama whātikau ma iwa i rotu If you seek the treasures of the ocean, you better get wet. So we need to know, we need to get to know the sea of uncertainty that we're in. We need to face it and learn more about how to live with it. There are so many kupu Māori for uncertainty because uncertainty is certainly not new to us. Our ancestors knew the importance of carrying the various shades of uncertainty across time, their awareness embedded in our reo, ready for our tongues to unwrap. Rangirua, to be in doubt, to be uncertain, literally two rangi, two different skies, two different outlooks. Ngākaurua a different kind of uncertainty and ambivalence, two hearts, and there are many more. As a Māori psychiatrist, I'm witnessing new shades of uncertainty, 
a new generation of a shadowy old face, forming as it rises up higher and higher, demanding recognition, rising up like the tide on our epic pedal. Tides rising way above previous watermarks and then long drawn out ebb tides, taitimu. And with it, our stress levels are fluctuating, sometimes feeling out of control. Here we are in our pandemic sea. More than five million people around the world have already passed on. And the global anguish of touch being something to fear. Here in Aotearoa, we've been so deeply affected in our own unique ways. The dread of our uncertain future, feeling fragile, trying to adapt, but with no solid ground to stand on. I worked in the Starship Regional Inpatient Mental Health Unit for children and teenagers with serious mental health last year in Level 4. We couldn't have visitors in the usual way. Only one visitor was allowed for each patient during Level 4 and they had to stay on the unit until our patients were ready to go home, which could take weeks. So the pain and suffering of separation was very real in that unique setting. The loss of not being there on the journey with loved ones, losing time, days rolling together in an eerie kind of groundhog day. Fano hobbling along in a strange level three-legged race to get through each day feeling something's gone, but not being quite able to put your finger on it. This recent Level 3 in, in Tāmaki has been hard. And, uh, yeah, feeling tired, feeling a bit more grumpy than usual, uh, feeling helpless and ineffective at times, lonely and then paradoxically wanting to isolate more at other times, and a sense of guilt for having seemingly few obvious impacts a kind of survivor guilt and shame, all mixed in with what was already going on for us all. And the ghosts of the Spanish flu rising up to haunt us and to help us too. Our great-grandmother, Henny Murray, died in March of 1919, six months after she delivered her baby Gus, our nanny's brother. And we believe that Spanish flu is what killed her. Our Māori death rates back then were eight times that of non-Māori. And this really fuels our tangible fear, the very real possibility of the loss of coma to a loss of whakapapa now. People are increasingly desperate. The new uncertainties compounding, finding reasons to live. People craving and rejecting closeness at the same time. People turning themselves into robots to cope shutting down their need for connection as a coping strategy, only to find it impossible to open those channels again when it's safer. The lingering effects, those slow, persistent waves that creep up the beach of our minds, rubbing away the messages we left to ourselves in the sand. Tide after tide of uncertainty, of living in limbo, breaking down the most resilient of us. So this is the other side of the pandemic, for those who survive the cruel storms of the COVID sea, washing away our ability to be connected. And yet here we are on our waka, paddling as best we can, both inside and out. Our waka tikanga reinvigorates our sense of managing the uncertainty, of moving with it, paddling alongside it, seeing it ripple away in the darkness. To turn our minds and our hearts to all of the things that anchor us in land, sky and sea. We are our oceans, our whenua, our rangi. We have the power of telling our stories. And that's why we're here tonight. These are the stories that never get old. These are the ones that continue to resonate. They carry the power of naming, naming uncertainty in its new guise. Talking about how it tries to weasel into our into our minds and set up base there unchecked and reminding ourselves life has always been uncertain and closure is a myth. We just like to pretend that life is more sure when really that isn't true. And there's always eye contact, those watery lenses into the soul, truly seeing each other and ourselves, masked and unmasked, seeing those tears, seeing that fear, pain, suffering, sharing our uncertainty without words and being prepared to let others see those turbulent inner waves 
This is a source of true comfort. The Fakatoki Ekitia Ainga Tanga Otimwana Memaku Kwe takes on a new meaning. We have to paddle in this moana knowing there will be change, there will be a shift, and there are so many things still to learn. So we turn our waka for home, kahaere te waka ki uta, coming into the safety of shore, feeling the surety of the sand holding our feet, stepping precisely into those of two matahina, kotahi manui tau ki te tahuna, tauatu, tauatu, tauatu. We've always lived in and with uncertainty, and we're never alone. We have our own tamatia a ayo to remind us of the ancient strength we carry. And of course, we've got Nanny on the waka too. Unuhia, unuhia, unuhia ki te urutapu nui, ki a wātia, ki a māma, te ngākau, te tinana, te wairua, ki te aratakata, koiara e rongo. Waka irihiake kironga, ki a tina, huye tai ki e. Kia ora. Kia ora. Tina rawa ati koe ni moa. Namihi. Our next speaker is also a very adventurous woman. Kyle Mewburn was born in the hot, sweltery, very Australian city of Brisbane, but we won't hold that against her. She now lives in Miller's Flat in central Otago in a house she built herself. When she was 40, Kyle made a transition. She started writing books and reckons she hasn't stopped since. She's a multi-award-winning author of delightful children's books, engaging, surprising, and funny. I've read many of them to my own three boys. In her 50s, Kyle began a very different and much bigger transition to become the woman she always knew she was. She grew up, in her words, a fake boy. She says to try and conceal a lie is a terrible thing. Her book, Faking It, My Life in Transition, is an honest and very raw read. It includes the trip to Argentina for surgery and the steps to adjust body chemistry, all the while supported by the remarkable woman by your side, your wife, Marion. So here is Kyle Newgood. Oh, <laughs> Hello. Um, isn't life an adventure? I could never imagine a six-year-old boy growing up in Brisbane would eventually be a semi-fabulous woman on stage in Christchurch talking to all these people with only minor heart palpitations. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was very shy when I was young. Um, and it's especially, tr- especially um, surprising because my family, if we had a motto, it would be something like, keep your head down and no one will notice you. I would have loved to fit in. Unfortunately, I had this secret. Can you imagine two paddocks? I mean, I've lived in Millerslat for 30 years, people. This is rural analogies are going to come out. <laughs> That's all I've seen for 30 years of paddocks. So if you want, one of them has balls in it. And there's a big fence of barbed wire, and in the other paddock, there's flamingos. Um, and I was dropped into this paddock of balls. And I was thinking, I'm a flamingo. <laughs> what am I doing in with all these balls? But I tried desperately. I knew that I couldn't possibly go over there because I would be, you know, there's Dobermans patrolling the border. And so I thought I'd be the best bull I could be. All I wanted to do was cry, really. But I channeled that crying and that emotion into fighting. I was really aggressive. I mean, I was a totally gentle boy, but every time something would happen and someone would bring attention to me, I was so tense about being found out. So I was studying all the boys, thinking, okay, that's what I have to do. And I had to enhance that to become the best boy because I was so afraid that someone would say, wait a minute, are you really a boy? But worse than actually getting in trouble was doing something good because then we'd have parade in the mornings and the principal would say, Kylie Mewburn, come up to the stage. And I would be walking through all this parade, all the school, thinking my face would be burning with shame and embarrassment, thinking, okay, someone's going to guess this. And so I had this sort of, I kept sort of standing out even though I was, was um, trying my hardest to fit in. 
And the good thing about being trans, I went through school and high school and university. The good thing was that I had no close friends. I had no connections with anyone. I was an outsider looking in. And you're thinking, that's good. <laughs> and it's not. It's terrible. It's totally, it's a traumatic experience. It's hell. But in retrospect, once you've sort of dealt with all your emotional baggage and your, you know, total um, turmoil and all that sort of stuff, I realised that actually it's freeing as well. If you don't have connection, you're free to do whatever you want. If you don't have people who you feel like, I don't want to disappoint, then you're free to do what you want because there's no one, you can try whatever you want because no one's going to say, no one who matters is going to say, Really? And my father, every time I started having different opinions, because as I got older I started thinking, wait a minute, being racist isn't actually that good an idea. Or actually the forest has more than timber in it. So I was living in an environment in Queensland where they basically just, you know, they were just bulldozing the Dane tree. And everyone was like, what are these long-haired hippies complaining about? They should get a job. And so when I expressed an opinion, my father would have his sigh and go, just to be different. There's no sense that I could possibly be different. And if you imagined how different I was, you probably would have beaten me more. Um, so I left, fled the country. I didn't have anything to stay for, which is a good thing. And I ended up sort of travelling. And, and I, if you would have asked me then, what's my definition of adventure, I would have thought, you know, hitchhiking through Europe. That's pretty much adventure. And so I did that for a year, and I ended up in Ireland, and I got a job, and that's where I met my wife, Marion. We've been married 36 years now. And I met, um, I was painting a youth hostel, and she was on holiday with a boyfriend. <laughs> and when we got together, all her friends were saying, oh, it's just a holiday romance. And I thought, you don't know me, seriously. <laughs> I hadn't had a romance. I, hadn't had, I actually thought, went through my whole life thinking that nobody would like me, let alone love me. And when I had this moment of getting, falling in love, I had this woman, this amazing, amazing woman. <laughs> Sorry, hormones, terrible. <laughs> to love me. I was thinking, I am willing to sacrifice anything for this. I will go through hell to keep this. And, of course, I tried but when you've got this voice in the back of you, in right deep down at this point saying, yeah, but this isn't you, are you going to tell her? Go, no, shut up. And I tried to lock this voice in this dark dungeon. And I tried, if I would have, and at that moment, if you would have said, here's a pill which will make you not trans, I would have said, cool, take it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Shouldn't say sorry, will you? Should I? <laughs> anyway, uh, so and then I then we had this thing, but of course, for me it was like I'd won the lottery. I had someone, and so I thought that's all I needed, and I was happy to be by myself. This is terrible. Uh, with my with my wife, and so we we travelled, we cycled around the, around Europe. We ended up in Australia. We cycled from Melbourne to Brisbane, and you think that's quite adventurous as well. And then we ended up in Miller's flat and decided to build a house. And I wasn't sure at all that I could build a house. But I was sure that I would notice if I was going totally wrong. And all these poles are going, this thing say, it's pretty good to me. <laughs> so I did it and built a house. But in that time, this idea of us living in a bubble, which totally appealed to me, Marianne just freaked out and just thought, there's more to life. She wanted people. And I was thinking, every person you give your attention to takes away from me. I was thinking, come on, give me. I want this. You're the only person I've got. Give me everything. So anyway, so we um, split up, and Marion got depression, which is a terrible thing. So that was when I started thinking, well, okay, I won't get her back, but I need to start accepting myself. I could drink a rosé occasionally. Are you showing your feminine side, are you? Miller's flat people. <laughs> <laughs> you can't drink a rosé without your sexuality being questioned. And then... <laughs> And then I was thinking, and in the process, I discovered who I was really, because I'd become this sort of quite angry, bitter sort of thing, and Marion didn't like that, and we rediscovered ourselves, each other, and Marion was sort of coming out of depression, and we got together again. 
And I thought, right, okay, this time, I'm not going to fuck it up this time. <laughs> and so I thought, I need to open up a bit, and I opened up a bit, and I thought we needed to do something. So I became a writer, and she was making teapots. She makes teapots. And so we start, I started writing, and I had this amazing life, and suddenly I was published. After seven years, I was published. Yes! And I started writing. I was becoming popular. I ran some awards. And I was a, wrote a series called Dinosaur Rescue, and suddenly I was a role model for boys. And I was thinking, this is the perfect life. I've got everything. I've got a career I love. I've got a wife I love. We've got two cats, no kids, no mortgage. Perfect life. And then eventually, but then in the back of the, my mind, this voice started saying again, but what does it mean? You've got all this, but it's not you who's had this. You're not a role model for boys. This fake Kyle is a role model for boys. You've created this Kyle guy who's a nice guy now. And he's the role model for boys. It's not you. And we got this moment when I was thinking, what's the point of it all? And I started pushing Marion away again. She kept, we were close as we could possibly be, but there's always this invisible barrier. And she would be shocked by it all the time because we'd be really close. And suddenly she'd hit this thinking, what, what's wrong? Is there something there? What am I not getting? And, I, and then I found myself pushing her away. And I just whole night, I was just thinking, I have to tell her. I have to tell her. And not for my own, my own benefit. It was like, maybe this is the chance she has to realise she should go with someone else. I was thinking, go. But there's also a little bit of selfish stuff and thinking, well, if you're not here, then me, I can maybe think about doing something about letting myself out because there'd be no one to hurt. So I, was, I got up early and I was pacing back and forward, pacing back and forward, just thinking, I have to tell her, I have to tell her. And then she got up, she gets up a bit later than me, and, and she came out and said, what's wrong? You're scaring me. And I was thinking... <laughs> and then I told her, I just threw it out. And she went, oh, I thought you were dying. <laughs> <laughs> and then she painted my toenails. Which is what you do, apparently. And anyway, so this is all... You know, and then I decided to come out, and the coming out is an adventure in itself. And I was coming out. But in the long term, I've actually realised that the, my biggest adventure, all these other little adventures, are all just heading towards one. And the one big adventure in life, I think, is to be your real, true self, be totally who you are, and don't let anyone else tell you what because it's a hard thing people want to sort of fit in people have loved ones they don't want to disappoint I don't have any of that so I'm quite lucky I can just be me you know people always say when I was in the other paddock I suddenly jumped over the fence and went I'm here and then of course people said and I started going towards them and they said women don't walk like that I said really okay what do they do and then I started doing something people women don't talk like that Women don't say that. People that women don't drink out drink beer out of a bottle. <laughs> and I was saying, where's the manual? Can somebody please give me the manual? I will read it from cover to cover and I will be a perfect woman. And at some point I realized actually that I'm from the generation where there was a binary, totally. Women on that side, men on that side. And I thought in my mind, for 50 years I thought, once I leapt over that fence, I would scuttle off possibly in lovely, elegant high heels, over to the flamingos. And I'd say, here I am. But then I realised once I was over the fence, I thought, actually, I can just stand here. I've made it. I am a woman now. I'm happy. And anything else, I don't care. Anyway, thank you very much for listening to me. <laughs> Thank you. Living in Christchurch on March the 15th, 2019, as many of us were, I was suddenly swept up into trying to do what I could to help some Muslim friends deal with the unspeakable horror of what had happened that day. One woman's voice stood out. Anjam Rahman was asking questions, as she had done for years prior to the terror attack. Why was the New Zealand SIS not looking into concerns the Muslim community had 
over the rise of, of Islamophobia and violence towards the community. She was a founding member of the Islamic Women's Council of New Zealand and after the attack established the inclusive Aotea Collective to combat discrimination. Salam alaikum, Anjum. Malakum salam. Thank you for that lovely introduction. And tēnā koutou katoa. It was really hard to think of my adventurous stories because I've been on so many adventures, whether it was been fighting for women's space in the mosque, my media work and engagements, um, standing for parliament and city council, being part of the setup of organisations like the Islamic Women's Council and Shama, as well as stories from my private life, like when I started wearing the hijab. But I decided to talk about the adventure that I'm on now, which starts in a dark place. I was in Auckland when the attacks happened at the Foundation North Building. I was attending a governance workshop, and as you do, um, I quietly checked my phone in the middle of a presentation, and I saw a couple of missed calls from numbers I didn't know. Because I'd already been doing a lot of media, I thought something must be happening, so I got onto Twitter and saw what it was. So I packed up my things, gave my apologies, uh, and left the room. I started calling media back. TVNZ said they'd come to, straight to me for an interview. And after that, it was back-to-back -back media calls for almost a month. It really hit me on the Sunday after the attacks, and it was a message from Dame Susan DeVoy that did it. And she didn't, you know, it was a simple message of condolence. But it just brought up for me all of the efforts that we'd been making over the past three years, and I, I was just gone. I remember doing an interview with Australian media at that time, and that poor journalist got the full force of my grief, and I really hope that he had supported his end. But during that period, there was also an incredible outpouring of support. People wanted to come together and share their grief. They wanted to help, and they wanted to change things. The question coming up was, what do we need to do so that something like this never happens again? And this was a question I was asking myself as well. I knew from many years of volunteer community and NGO work that the solution to what happened in Christchurch was never going to be a quick fix. It required complex long-term work and it needed resourcing and commitment. We needed to be talking to each other. Around early April, I felt like I was losing control and not really able to stay on top of things. I knew I needed help, so I went to see a counsellor, um, and she told me that I needed to build my scaffolding and support around me. And because of that, I ended up in conversations with a couple of people about what I thought was needed, a strategy for diversity and inclusion for Aotearoa. The next thing I knew, I was writing a proposal document, presenting it at a conference and in the media, and the momentum and support for the work was just phenomenal. When I talked about what it is that I wanted, people stepped up to help, whether it was with comms, hiring, writing, visioning. In those months of April and May 2019, I was still working as an accountant for 25 hours a week. Along with that 25 hours, I was working on this project, as well as the continued meetings. There was the Royal Commission that was announced, my board roles, and I was getting a lot of requests for speaking engagements. In June, I managed to get funding to work part-time on this project, so I was able to reduce my hours for the accounting job to about 15 hours a week. Everything moved so fast and it was all happening at once. For the Royal Commission, I was spending weekends going back through emails, notebooks, reports and collecting evidence, working with the lawyers as part of the Islamic Women's Council team. I was looking for an organisation that would host our project and that took a lot of work and I want to thank the Board of Shama for stepping up and helping out there. I was doing funding applications and budgets and placing job ads and interviewing. In September, I had my first team members come on board, two of them, and then I was a manager, which I had done before, but in a much more structured environment. With the small team, we worked out how we were going to do this thing. Sandra Jones and Nona Morris worked with me, and we decided to do a road trip around the country to talk to people about how well they felt like they belonged here in Aotearoa. 
So we planned the road trip and how it would work. We planned what new team members we'd need. We planned all the different types of people we wanted to talk to, which turned out to be every kind. We planned how we might reach them, what we would do with the stories they shared with us, and how those stories would inform the next part of the project. By December 2019, I made the decision to quit my permanent secure accounting job. I was a single mum and that was the job that fed my children and allowed me to have my own home. That was my security. And I gave it up for a contract position with three years funding. For me, that was incredibly scary. I was moving into a project that was and continues to be innovative without any project management skills, without an HR department. I was feeling so out of my depth a lot of the time. I counted from 15th March 2019 to 15th of December that year. I had five days where I didn't work. Last year was the most amazing experience when we got to sit in rooms with small groups of people across 46 towns and cities, as well as online. And they trusted us with their experiences and their ideas. Sometimes there were tears, there was anger. But ultimately, during those 90-minute conversations, there was support and connection. Over the last two and a half years, I've taken part in countless consultations and meetings with so many government departments, I don't have time to even list them all. I took part in formal hearings with the Royal Commission, as well as monthly meetings with the reference group they set up. I've continued to do a lot of media and public speaking, and it's not been all fun. Many times it's been incredibly heartbreaking. I've had anxiety and heightened stress levels at times. But I couldn't have done it alone. Everything that I've been part of, good people have stepped forward and said, here's how I can help, or what do you need? And sometimes I've been the person who's saying that to another group of people. Some things that I wanted to share... For me, you know, the adventure starts with finding your dream, your idea, the thing that moves you. The next step is talking to people. It's true that the most successful things happen when you have built your scaffolding, when you have got the people around you. But you need to be prepared to fail. And I have failed at a lot of things over the years and very publicly. I never got to be an MP after standing three times or a city councillor. Um, and I've had plenty of other failures too. Some of them have taken a long time to heal from. But I have learned so much from all of those experiences. An adventure doesn't always have a happy ending, but it will have happy parts in it, and we need to never lose sight of those. They're precious. And an adventure doesn't have to be grand. It doesn't need to change the world. Making a small difference in the life of one person is wonderful. I want to finish by remembering all of those directly impacted by the attacks. I had the honour of hearing many of those, their stories during the sentencing last year, and those stories are so much more than important than mine. Thank you. Thank you, Ang Zhang, for your courage and your tenaciousness. Our next speaker, I also know, I also remember another terrible day when news came through of a wonderful young man, Sam Zarifa, Julie Zarifa's son, who drowned after a rafting accident on the West Coast. Just two and a half weeks earlier, Julie's husband, Paul, had died of pancreatic cancer. You said at the time, and you've told me that you regretted saying this, that you felt you would not ever truly be happy again. You've written an amazing book, Grief on the Run. And when I alluded to um, Adventurous Woman, for me, is about being honest and vulnerable and sharing your story, Julie, you basically are that. So, kia ora koutou. At 7pm on the 21st of May 2018, and I'm on a train bound for San Sebastian, having departed from Santiago de Compostela at 10.06 this morning. It is an 11-hour journey, which has actually, and somewhat surprisingly, been reasonably non-arduous, 
despite there being neither Wi-Fi nor the ability to charge one's phone. As such, I've watched the scenery go by, I've snoozed on and off, and I've read an entire book and eked out my food rations for today. I've also been doing a lot of thinking and processing, having just completed the huge physical and emotional challenge of the 800-plus kilometre Camino de Santiago, walking-wise when we trekked into Santiago on Thursday, and emotion-wise yesterday with a sprinkling of ashes below the lighthouse at Muchia, the small fishing village at the end of the world. So what is my story, and why does it commence here at the completion of my Camino? My motivation for undertaking this enormous physical and emotional challenge sadly arose out of a series of life events, losses that Joe has alluded to, that collectively resulted in me realising that I needed to get away from New Zealand for a bit and take my necessary grieving elsewhere. The past five weeks of walking, on average, 25 kilometres per day, sleeping in bunk beds and becoming accustomed to a very modest standard of food, and I mean very, has allowed my mind and my body to commence the grieving process, however that continues to play out. So turn back time, uh, April 2014, um, my family of five sitting on the beach in Rarotonga, so we'd managed to collate the university calendars of all three of our children in their late 20s and managed to get over to uh, Rarotonga for a week to celebrate my birthday. What we didn't know at the time was that my husband Paul, sitting there next to me, was um, being very stoic, but he had a funny tummy, and we just thought, mm, a bit unusual, Paul's never sick, but, um, you know, he was quite quiet all week, and long story short, we got back to um, New Zealand, and he just didn't really pick up, I said, why don't you go and see the GP, you know, and off he tootled, and after 10 very arduous weeks of going down all sorts of rabbit holes, because he was this apparently fit, active guy, Paul was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Cancer's a game-changer. Um, and pancreatic cancer in particular is not one you particularly want to get. So we, we were lucky, again, we had big talks, up the ante big time and managed to um, sell our family home and downsize to an apartment. We managed to sell Paul's business. We did know that the diagnosis was um, going to be terminal, so we, we lived hard. And honestly, hand on heart, say we had this fantastic window of... Um, we bought a camper van, we travelled New Zealand. I went with Paul sometimes. I'd send one of the kids to go with him other times. He connected with friends, family, and by the time he passed away in November 2017, he'd, he'd lived, he'd already lived a good life and he'd had three years of retirement rather than the 30 we anticipated and we felt really obviously terribly distraught and sad, but very proud that we'd given Paul, you know, all of those wonderful memories and ourselves as well. So the kids and I were just sort of rallying and starting to, um, to, you know, think about what the new norm was going to be like. I certainly hadn't anticipated being a widow at 53. It was not, you know, in the, in the cards. And the kids, you know, Sam, Jared and Christy were devastated at losing their beloved sport-loving Great dad. Um, a week after his passing, we had this amazing ceremony out in Sumner Bay where it's called a surfer's paddle out and then about 180 surfers paddled out into the middle of the ocean and formed a circle. We, um, you know, had a karakia and a blessing and I sprinkled some ashes and it was just amazing. And I remember Sam on that day, was, he was just fizzing. He was so proud of, of the support for his, his dad and this community. So a week later again, Saturday night, 9th of December, 2017, I ventured out to the movies and it was a rare thing. It had all been pretty full-on and all-consuming, nursing Paul at the end and, you know, off to the movies I went. I felt, um, turned off my phone as you do and at the end of the movie turned my phone back on to receive a phone message from my neighbour in Sumner saying, look, Julie, I don't want to alarm you but... Um, can you come home? We've got a couple of policemen here looking for you. And sure enough, the couple of policemen that were there waiting for me were waiting to deliver the news that my son Sam, aged 27, had lost his life in a rafting trip on the west coast of New Zealand 16 days after Paul. So 
we thought the pool's passing was hard enough. This was honestly neck level. I lay on the floor in a fetal position for a few hours with people stroking my hair. We were just, just we couldn't believe the cruelty of, of the situation. But I got a few hours sleep that night and I woke up the next morning and I thought, this is my son, my gig. I took back all the jobs that had been delegated um, around me when I was in that state to do with the celebration of now Sam's life. And Jared and Christy and I spent a week just working as a team, pulling together um, an amazing celebration of life for Sam's now passing. And I, as a proud mother, this 27-year-old son attracted 1,500-plus people to his funeral at Christchurch Boys High School where he was a teacher. Um, and, yeah, couldn't be prouder. But then it was just the three of us and what to do. Jared, Christy and I, what to do? How, how do you cope with this double whammy of grief on the one hand, the anticipatory grieving that we'd gone through, on the other hand, this sort of acute shock, horror, disbelief, everything. So I'm, again, I use the word lucky. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist and theoretically, you know, know the tools of the trade in terms of what are some of the strategies we can use to try and get ourselves out of adversity. Um, but I also had a degree of intuition. Um, I knew what worked for me or what I felt was going to work for me in navigating this kind of pit of grief. So this is where the adventurous bit comes in. So in 2018, I kicked off the year by cycling around Sri Lanka with a group of fellow Kiwis, and we were um, raising money for Variety Children's Charity. I followed soon after with the Camino. Um, the passage was read from that, and that was an amazing journey, and took the kids back to um, as close as we could get to Paul's homeland, which he was Palestinian, so we went to Jordan and uh, looked across at Gaza, where he'd been born, and just tried to get that sense of you know, connection and letting go at the same time. And last but not least, I decided to run the New York Marathon because um, I was fit uh, by then, and I'd also bought a year's worth of travel insurance, so never been one to, you know, waste not, want not. So, um, so that was with the, for the Mental Health Foundation, and again, brought back a lot of money to, um, for the Mental Health Foundation. So the take-home message, I guess, of this talk is really just that, that we can't control events that happen to us. I wish we could. I'd give anything to turn back time. But the point is that we actually can control our response to those events. Every adversity, every failure, and every heartache carries with it the seed of an equivalent or an even greater opportunity or benefit. Namihi nui. Thank you. Our last amazing adventurous woman, or Emily writes. Emily is a mother of two young boys, Eddie and Ronnie. Her first blog post about motherhood in 2015 went viral, reaching more than a million people in a few days. Her books have titles like Rants in the Dark, From One Tired Mama to Another, and Is It Bedtime Yet? Words of Encouragement for Sleep-Deprived Parents. You talk about how mothers are supposed to be grateful so grateful and so happy and enjoy every minute of parenting. What you do in your honest and very unflinchingly raw accounts of motherhood is that you make everyone feel better, that actually they're not alone. So our final adventurous woman, let's welcome Emily. Um, thank you so much. Um, I really spent such a long, long time trying to work out what I would say tonight because I'm not a fan of adventure. I prefer to keep a steady heartbeat of like 60 to 100 beats per minute. That's like <laughs> my goal. And I like to not be too hot or too cold. And since being asked to speak at this event, I was like, this is not good. Like, what am I going to talk about? Because day in and day out and all night long... My life as kids, and they've grown, so I'm no longer like carrying them around everywhere. But my day usually starts at 2 a.m. 
um, it's not good to start your day at 2am. That's when my youngest son wakes me up and asks me if I've ever been to Easter Island. Um, Or he says, do you know the population of Lesotho? And I don't. Um, I'll be trying to go back to sleep and he'll be like, Mama, did you know Stewart Island? Mama, do you know about Stewart Island? And I'll just be like, I don't don't care about Stewart Island. And then he's like, it's New Zealand's third largest island, Mum. It's New Zealand's third largest island. And I'm just like, okay. And then I tell him to go back to sleep and he sort of curls around me and I can hear my husband opening up the fridge and pulling out the insulin for our eldest boy. And he measures it in sort of the half light and he gently scoops up our other boy And he says, I can always hear him in the night. I hear him say, you ready, honey? And then my little boy will have a little murmur and then he'll be injected with this, like, life-saving elixir. And my husband slowly gets up and I can always, like, I can hear his bones creak in the night as he puts the insulin back into the fridge. And I can hear him prepare for the next wake-up. And I just lay there thinking about him and the insulin and my other little boy. And then my little boy who's beside me says the permanent population of Stewart Island, (laughs) according to the census, is 408, Mum. (laughs) And we wake with the dawn. And the thing is, the kids wake up and they have more energy than is, like, humanely possible for having that little sleep. And you're just automatically, you're straight away in it. You're just like shoes, socks, hat, Okay, you need your jacket. All right, school photos. Yes, school photos. Have you got the thing? You've got swimming class today. Grab your togs. No, not those shoes. Not those shoes. Your covered shoes. No, not those shoes. Where are your covered shoes? And then you're just like, off we go, and you're out. And then I'm home, and I'm doing the dishes and putting on the washing machine and hanging the washing out and firing up my laptop and trying to do some writing and running some errands and then forgetting lunch, and then it's time to pick up the kids again. And my youngest is just this bowling ball in child form. Like, he just rockets into me, and he just breathlessly tells me that the driest place on earth is the Atacama Desert. (laughs) And my oldest kind of drags his school bag. He's on new medication, and he's so tired at the moment, and he needs a big glass of water to swallow his pills, and he can't quite work out yet whether he wants one pill and then swallow and then one pill and swallow, or two pills, and then a big gulp, and a swallow, so that's like a whole thing, (laughs) and my youngest is just like, Australia is wider than the moon, (laughs) and my oldest is just like, mum, please tell him to be quiet, and then he'll be like, Canada has more lakes than the whole earth put together, (laughs) and the dog needs a walk, and the lunchboxes need emptying, and one child always needs rest, while the other child always needs to get their energy out. And you're just like, I think maybe I'm too tired for adventure. (laughs) And I told my husband that. And I said, I've been looking for it. And I just feel like we don't have adventures anymore. And he said to me, I don't think that's true. But he looked like so tired. (laughs) (laughs) And we put the kids in the bath and we read them a story each. Well, read the illustrated atlas for one. And then Minecraft Zombie High School, which is not a well-written series. (laughs) Um, And then we were just too tired for anything else, so we just went to bed. I know that they say that the view from Everest is, like, exquisite. I know that they say there's no high like reaching the top. I know they say there's no way to know what you're capable of if you don't try but I think that many of us in our own way, we know what endurance is. Having a family has been the greatest adventure I've ever known. Enormous highs and enormous lows. It has pushed me to my very limit while helping me grow in ways I never thought were possible. We may not be heroes out in the world, but to our whanau, whether that's children, our siblings, our parents or our chosen family, I think we can be something really important, something really big, something that really matters. The adventure can simply be tackling each day and finding the joy in every corner of a cluttered, toy-filled house.
the adventure can be showing up for the people you love and knowing that that matters. It won't get a lot of attention, but all around us, there are so many beautiful, quiet adventures happening. An uncle holds the hand of his nephew in a hospital room so his brother can stand outside and breathe in the fresh air. Someone is holding their best friend's child at the edge of a stream feeding sausages to eels. Someone is making a meal for their neighbour. Someone is speaking peace. Holding a hand as someone faces a fear, knowing that they're not alone. Someone is tending to the community garden, knowing the beans and the spinach will be enjoyed by many in time, but not right now. I won't climb a mountain but I think my view from here is more beautiful than Everest. I won't know the high of reaching the top, but I know what it feels like to lay my body down at night and know I did the best I could by a family that loves me. I know each day I am testing myself to be something my kids can be proud of, and that's more than enough for now. Every day I strive to be the person I need to be for my family and my community. Every one of these days is hard but worthy. This ordinary life that we live is extraordinary. It just depends on how you look at it. And I look at it as an adventure. Thank you to all of the amazing women for sharing yourselves and your lives. You're all adventurers, so carry on with your journeys. In the words of William Shakespeare, no legacy is so rich as honesty.